Hi, Liz. Hi, Olivia. Welcome to Women, Magic, and Power, everyone. Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Today, um, we talked to Kat Fulmer-Hogan. She is a Black woman of faith and a community organizer. She is also very much involved in LGBTQ plus advocacy, and she's the president of the Stoutsburg Sauerland African American Museum here in Hopewell, New Jersey. Um, we have a very long and fascinating chat with Kat, and it's going to be two episodes. So today's episode is going to focus on Kat's childhood and the ways that she navigated issues of identity and faith. That's right. We have a great conversation. It's very interesting and very um, enlightening for a lot of us here in the community. And I'm sure this reflects what's happening in other communities as well regarding um, Black identity and growing up in a community that's mostly white. So everybody should listen to this and, and pay attention. She has like some very good and important things that she says throughout the, the podcast. So if you're uh, paying attention, you'll learn a few things just like we did while just talking to her. All right, listeners, enjoy. So nice to have you, Kat. Thank you. It's really great to be here. Thank you. Thanks for coming. Um, so you grew up here in Hopa Valley um, and your family has really deep roots in this community. So can you tell us a little bit about what it was like growing up here and how that continues to shape the experiences that you have in the community? Yeah, that's a <laughs> that's a big yeah. question. Mm -hmm. And it's complex, but like, what isn't? Um, so there were really beautiful things about growing up here. And there were really hard things mm. about growing up here. I'm going to start with the beautiful things. Yeah. Um, so my grandparents purchased 30 some odd acres on Mountain Church Road in the 1940s. Um, they were having trouble finding somewhere to purchase because at that time, real estate wasn't necessarily available to everyone. Mm -hmm. um, interestingly enough, the place they purchased was owned by a Jewish man. Mm. He had heard that they'd been looking. They actually were interested in his property, but they were told by the realtor that you won't, you won't be able to buy that. He came to them huh. and said, I heard you were looking. I've got a 10-room house. Are you interested in buying it? And uh, I will hold the mortgage for you. And you can pay me. Oh. And so, listen, I've always said that there's uh, some beautiful work that's been done by black people and Jewish people in concert. Mm -hmm. And so that just, <laughs> you know, just further solidifies that assertion. Mm -hmm. um, and so... Yeah, and a lot of trust too, right? Because, and a lot of trust, mm -hmm. right? Because I'm giving you money, you're holding under your name. Exactly. And um and it was such a gift for them. Um they had to move out of where they were living, which was like right up the road across the street from McNellis. Um the folks that owned it, their child had gotten married and wanted to, you know, move in there and start their family. So, you know, my grandparents needed to find somewhere else to go. And at that point they had seven of the ten children so essentially as you know some of the children got older they sort of subdivided that mm -hmm. and people mm -hmm. bought pieces and um so there were points 
uh, when I was growing up where there were like, I don't know, three and four different households spread across about two miles on the mountain. And it was such a very free range way to grow up. That's very cool. To have sort of cousins abounding everywhere. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You came home when it got dark and, you know, we felt very safe. Uh, we felt incredibly safe. Um, and I would have loved for my children to be able to grow up that way. But, you know, certainly it, it, it didn't end up being in the cards. Eventually, my mother purchased the original homestead that my grandparents owned from my grandparents. Okay. Um, and raised us, you know, in that house. Um, listen, there was no indoor plumbing when <laughs> my parents bought the house. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's a thing. There was, <laughs> there was no... And, and the house was heated with two, like, Franklin stoves, one at the east end and one at the west end of the house. And there were, like, vents in the floor that you could open and close so that the heat would... Yeah. So when people so act like... really growing up on the mountain. Listen, we were roughing it. Yeah. Like, <laughs> legit. There was a throne room. It wasn't an outhouse. But, like, some... If it's in the house, clearly someone is taking it out of the house at some mm-hmm. point. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we had, like, not a proper washer and dryer, you know. It was, like, a plug-in, like, Maytag that you had to put, like, a hose in with a ringer on it. So I did not have your typical 70s suburbia childhood experience. Um, and although I didn't feel, like, as a child... I didn't feel that I was missing something. Yeah, sure. My mom was um, was and is a pretty magical human being, Aww. and so we didn't. We never felt well. I didn't. I won't say that it was the same for all. There were four of us. I won't say that it was the same for all of us. But I never felt like I was poor. Yeah. I never felt that I was missing anything that's I didn't very understand important. it I think until I think it started hitting me maybe like early high school sure that but that's a long while it's a long yeah. while mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. my mom worked really hard I mean incredibly hard um and we were we didn't get all of the things but there would always be the thing mm-hmm. <clears throat> and she worked really hard to give us this the one special thing and so we didn't I don't know I just didn't yeah motherhood can be that way right like that I feel like describes motherhood very well like you prioritize you get things done and when you're having a rough time put a brave face and get everybody to move forward yeah I remember being little and um the power would get cut off as it does and you know, mom would bring us all into the one, like, living room. We'd shut that door, and she would act like we were camping. Mm-hmm. And so <clears throat> it wasn't scary. And then later on, we would call my uncle, who knew how to, like, turn it back on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh-huh. I figure the statute's up on, on that, so yeah. you don't have to worry. But yeah. And he lived right down the road, and he was sort of the man of our house. And he would come and he'd turn it back on. We'd be like, they're gone now. <laughs> Can you? And, and he'd turn it back on so that we wouldn't be cold. Yeah. But, you know, that's, 
that's, you know, that's the way it was. And it was, you know, it was complicated. Yeah, but it sounds like, I think that's a good thing that you're saying, like, I'm not going to generalize for all four of us, but it's great that you lived it that way, right? Because it obviously had something to do with um, who you are as well, that like you see the glass half full. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Um, I think too, though, that, you know, there were complexities. We were like all through school. It was, you know, me and my one cousin. We were the only black kids in our class. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was, that was the hard part. I think at the end of the day, that was the really hard part. There was a lot of, there were overt things, but there were also a lot of like these microaggressions mm-hmm. behind the scenes oppressive behaviors, things like, um, which I did not share. So my mother is a black woman and my father was a white man. And there were things like in second grade when I had a picture of my dad and they were like, oh, that's not, that's not your dad. Mm -hmm. I'm like, pretty sure it is. (laughs) Pretty sure I know like who my dad is. Yeah. And there were times in the, um, like in the grocery store and things uh, where people would see my mom is a, a deep, beautiful brown woman. And then there was me. And uh, my siblings and I don't share the same father. So they didn't look like me either. Mm. And so there were times when, you know, if if I was crying or I was upset with my mom, which kids do. Mm-hmm. My mom got the looks and who's this child and is this really your kid? And so there was a lot of, you know, growing up where I felt a little bit like I had to constantly claim identity. Mm. Which you is know? why everything else going on at home didn't matter because that was a safe space. That was a safe that was yeah. a safe space. Those yeah. were my people. I was the youngest. So I thought they were all like superheroes Mm -hmm. as far as I was concerned. They were like the coolest. Mm -hmm. And I had a brother who was like eight years older than me. So he was extra cool. (laughs) For sure. Um, You know. And so I think there I felt very safe. And when I would go, um, when I would go visit my dad, that also felt like a really safe space. Because, and that was a space where I, I had, I didn't have to share anything. Where was he? That he wasn't in Hopewell? So they, so my parents got divorced when I was eight. That was, that was obviously, mm-hmm. that was not a fun, that was not a fun time. Mm-hmm. Um, and my father went uh, initially and he went sort of to move with his parents for a little while while he figured things out. And so there was seeing him on weekends and things of that nature yeah. And so when I would go to see him, oftentimes that was at my grandparents' house. And that was a place where I was the only kid. Um, I was the only grandchild there for like 16 years. Um, I didn't have to share anything <laughs> with anyone. <laughs> and so it felt like a really special like place. Yeah, from being the youngest to being an only child. But yeah, <laughs> who's just hanging out with like, I literally spent the time there quite often because my dad would be working just hanging out with either my aunt who was only 13 years older than me or my grandparents and their friends who were like all senior citizens (laughs) (laughs) teaching me how to play cards Uh like but I 
think that nurtured um, like some of my deep respect and admiration for our for our ancestors mm-hmm. and for our elders. Mm-hmm. I think was um, born at some of it's inherent, right? That's how mm-hmm. we're programmed, but. I think some of it was born out of those times as a child hanging out with those people where they really, at least they acted like they were very interested in what I had to say mm-hmm. and whatever new thing that I thought was so great that I was going to show them that I'd <laughs> learned or, or singing for them. That was, that was always a favorite. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> um, and so I think a lot, some of my identity, some of the ways that I move now in the world, I definitely think were a product of those very special years of playing with senior citizens. Listen, I grew up with grandparents in the house. Yeah. Um, so I totally get that, right? Um, that inter- the interactions that you have as a kid with the elders yeah. and with the seniors, where it's not, you know, one visit a couple times a year or what have you. Um, and you have these real deep, wonderful relationships, Mm -hmm. I think that really informs how you then live the rest of your life. um, I agree. I agree. In a lot of different ways. Yeah. There's like a, also like this respect, right? Because there's particularly, I think for me coming from Argentina, culturally is different, right? Like family sticks together, whatever. Yeah. But here, from what I've learned and seen and heard, people at a certain age when you're 17 they send you to college and then when you come back and it's time for them to go to hospice or home like family doesn't stick together in the same way in this country no in the i same hear way. that so like the the spending time with the elders i think also or with seniors it helps to respect and create a relationship and that's what family is about right mm-hmm. like to to then respect them as you grow up and not just discard them and it's good for the seniors i mean it's just it's good for everyone and i think that's you know because we are a black family there absolutely was the nuclear element Mm -hmm. so when my parents first purchased for my grandparents they stayed for a while and it wasn't just them there were like three other family sort of subunits Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so you know there was always someone one of the kids living with my grandparents. Yeah. And so that whole nuclear family um, was also very much a part of my existence. So so there was always that intergenerational sort of interaction and exchange. And I really find it to be um, an incredibly powerful thing because when you are young and you have not all of this, all of who we are has not been spoiled mm-hmm. yet. Um, there's a way in which you move in the world, right? There's just this never ending hope and optimism. Um, and then also when you are old, depending upon who you are, because 100%. it's not everyone, there is a way in which you have shed mm-hmm. all of those horrible things mm-hmm. that yes. the world has thrust upon you. And you have sort of gotten it down to what's the nitty gritty, mm-hmm. which very interestingly is, is, is definitely akin to where you started. And so that intergenerational dynamic to me is like, I wish I could just like start a nonprofit. And that's like literally what they did. Of course, there's like 50 nonprofits I want to start, but I, that's one I of them. Say, I'm sure. That's one of them. Yeah. Because I think 
it's so good for everyone, even the people in the middle who may not be a part of the equation at the moment. Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. these children have a sort of a very different understanding of the world when they're able to interact with someone who is of years. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's just, it's, it's a gift. I agree. I and agree. I think that when you're, what you were saying, and you put it so beautifully, but when you're our age and all of these things that, you know, have been thrown at you are still very much at play, mm -hmm. it is harder to also stop and be like, okay, I'm going to just stop and enjoy for a minute my right. my cut my kid my son my whatever children around <laughs> like it's just it's hard to do it it's more like okay i deal with you every day just just go do something right. without yeah. me <laughs> you're less inclined to sit down and teach them how to play canasta yes yeah right <laughs> yes. <laughs> then their grandparents even though i be. love canasta yeah, this yes. is fantastic yes. listen i've never played canasta was um church and religion yes. a big part of it hugely so mm -hmm. so i You know, my mother and my aunts had an acapella gospel group. Oh, Everyone beautiful. in my family sang. Like, it's it's like a, I don't know, it's a DNA thing. I don't know what it is. But everyone sings in my family. Um, and so they grew up singing together. And so I spent a lot of time as a child going place to place to hear them perform. Now, some of it was within the, con it was gospel, so it was in the context of the church, but then they also had separate careers where they were singing either jazz or blues or funk or whatever. Mm. And so I could get into places like Havana when I was like nice. 10 or <laughs> right. whatever uh, to hear mom and my aunts or, or John and Peter's to hear them sing. As a matter of fact, we spent every, every Christmas Eve there growing up because oh, nice. they would perform. The, all the girls would singing there but church was huge i mean um in our lives it's very interesting because my mother sort of came up in the joint baptist black baptist mm. and ame african methodist episcopal experience mm. but then my her my great-grandfather who my mom was incredibly close to was the deacon at an um at a pentecostal church He was a deacon there, so they had that experience as well. But interestingly enough, that is not how I was raised. My father was raised uh, Dutch Reformed. Huh. So when my parents got married, um, we decided to go to a Dutch Reformed church because I think my mom's hope was if we go there, then my dad will come mm. to church as well. And sure. that's something that we could do as a family. That never happened. But here I, we were driving to Blauenberg, that gorgeous where... Reformed church, the white church right mm -hmm. there on 518. That's where I went until I was early teens. Um, so here we were, <laughs> worshiping with all of these, you mm -hmm. know, Dutch folks. Super white. And super white. <laughs> and my mom is there. And my and at this point, then my aunt is there. My other aunt is is going there as well. And then like some other cousins. So here we are, you know, this black family <laughs> worshiping with all these super white people. It didn't feel weird because I was going to school every day. Yeah. With yeah. like all white people, so my world was super white. Yeah. <laughs> to be clear, mm -hmm. outside of family. Yeah. It just was, and so it didn't 
feel weird per se. Um, you know, and I was confirmed within the context of that church. And so when changed. did you switch churches and what was that like? <clears throat> Mom looked at me one day and said, I want to convert to Catholicism. And mm-hmm. I was like, what? <laughs> what do you want to do? How did she get that idea? How did she get that idea? So mom loved the symbolism Mm. in the Catholic church, but she was coming at it as like a Baptist. So she was coming at it from this personal relationship, but then the symbolism on Mm. top of it. Mm -hmm. So it felt, I think, a little different. So when mom said she wanted to switch, my sister, my oldest sister said, I'm going to go with her. And I was like, yeah, that's a bridge too far. (laughs) Like for me. Mm -hmm. I was like, I think I'm going to stick around here and yeah. go it alone and see how I do. I didn't last there very long because it wasn't even in my community. Hmm. So then I started church hopping mm. with friends. And then it wasn't actually until I came home from college that I started going to Second Calvary. I started going to Baptist church. I think part of that was born out of the fact that, you know, when I went to college... I really began being very deeply seated in my identity as a black woman. That wasn't necessarily something that I was raised. I always say I wasn't planted here. I grew here. Mm-hmm. Um, so it wasn't something that was intentionally, like it wasn't a conversation that we were having. A lot of the conversations we were having were centered around being the good black people, mm. um, which is so. Which means, <laughs> which means which what? So, but it's a, it's a thing. But it's like, like what no is force. it like a version of like a white black I, person? Like what no, is no, that? No, no, no. I good... think it's just like don't let them see you do this. Don't let them see you do that. You always have to be the best, the the smartest, the the fastest, the most talented. There was always this push to be like, there's these kinds of black people, and then there's this kind of black person. And we want to be this kind, mm-hmm. right? And, and again, like to maybe to phrase it better, is this a standard that was created because black people didn't want, because you don't want to be a, like I'm wondering yeah, what it is. Oh, this, it was like, definitely, yeah. it's, it's, it's Like as someone who didn't grew up in it's the US. born out of a, an incredibly broken system, yeah. right? right? So it's like, you know, it's part of this myth that, um, you don't want to be the bottom rung on the ladder because that's supposedly the problem. And that's why we're all not getting what we want is because of that horrible bottom rung on the ladder. So the Dragging idea was down. the furthest you can get from the bottom rung, right? The better off yeah. you are, right? Yeah. So And it- then you have to turn around and look at the bottom rung also and say how horrible they are. Because mm-hmm. that's how the game, that's how yeah. the whole thing works. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's never the top rung. No. It's always... The bottom. The bottom. It's always everybody between the bottom and the top has to be convinced that the bottom is the problem. That's how the system works. That's how we can perpetrate it. It's mm-hmm. perpetuate it. Mm-hmm. All of it. Yeah, That's never true. look at the every top. little bit. So so essentially there was, and it's not wasn't just within my family. Like it was a thing. Yes, yeah, a systemic. So thing. you felt like everything you did, every every breath I took, I felt that I was representing an entire race of people. I mean, that amount of weight, I think, yeah, and burden of responsibility that I carried, like as a child, just trying to just go through life was like insane. 
And then if you miss, if you had a misstep, you felt like I have now just, I've now made it impossible for, I mean, I remember watching TV, watching the news and they were getting ready to say that someone had done some horrible thing. Hmm. And I remember being like, I hope it's not a black person. I hope it's not a black person. I remember feeling that sort of the weight of that. Sure. Because I felt like if it was, everyone's going to be like, see, Mm -hmm. we were right. We were right. They're a problem. So there was this constant so like up. so fucked up. So <laughs> fucked up. So fucked up. <laughs> and I mean, and listen, I'm like you get someone else in here that looks like me and they're gonna tell you they felt the probably same. the same thing. Mm-hmm. Probably the same exact story. Do you think that it was even more like you felt even more the pressure because you're surrounded by white people like in a community oh, yeah. where you're like, so you're the two examples that we have of black yes. people. You got to be yes. pristine. Yes. And I remember in my teens becoming a bit of a smart ass and sitting in social studies class <laughs> and we're talking about, you know, slavery and um, and and completely inaccurately, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're talking mm-hmm. about slavery. And then, you know, I'm, I'm already uncomfortable. Yeah. Right. And then, you know, my teacher's asking me, what do you think about, you know, this? For you? And I, and I still, <laughs> I was like, am I speaking just for me now? Or <laughs> am I speaking on behalf of all black people everywhere? Because I need to know before I answer this question. It's a valid question. Was not well received. <laughs> Needless to say. How dare you? Was not well received. Mm-hmm. But that's literally what you were doing. I didn't raise my hand. Yeah. I didn't ask mm-hmm. to be called on. And you have to be blind if you can't look in this room and realize I am the only person in here that looks like me. Yeah. You know, so so it was this balance between that and, well, you're not really black. Oh. Right? Mm. Right? You just look like you have a tan. Right? You're just, you're, you're not really. You're not black enough. And yeah. I'm sort of like, well, I think my mom might find that <laughs> shocking. <laughs> Um, you know, that that's how you feel, you know, and I still remember my senior year of high school. Um, I remember like, and you sort of have all these jokes about classifying people as certain things. And I remember them listing me as the whitest black person and another student that had transferred from Ewing as the blackest white person. Oh my goodness. And they asked me if I was okay with it. Yeah, like I, I was like, yeah, I'm, it's fine. It's fine. Yeah, because here I am trying like, to be better. That's not me now, today. Yeah, right. Everyone would be sat down and be offered an education and history. I'd be like, get out your notebooks. Like, we're, gonna, we're going in. Like, no, but, here's a podcast. Like but like at 17. And- I was like... Well, 17 and being taught be the good kind of black people. Like, yeah. then what are you going to yeah. say? I'm yeah. going to resist this? Like, this is not okay? Yeah. So. College. Sorry. Right. Yes. So college. So did you go to a college that was less white than the rest of your experiences to that point? Well, like, yes and no. Right. Okay. So I went to University of Delaware. So it's big. So it wasn't less white necessarily, but there was larger numbers so there's more so so you could go there and be immersed in whatever your cultural identity is in within the context of that population Mm -hmm. socially and be there like the whole way Hmm. right right 
Um, so I spent my first year really involved with uh, like a Christian organization at, at school. All of the youth groups, all of the churchy stuff is where I felt like I could make connections with white people. Okay, sure. And that they didn't necessarily have a choice <laughs> about it because there was a lot of, you know, you it was riddled with rejection. Let's be clear. Everybody gets an invite to the pool party in sixth grade except you and your cousin. What two, two things do you have in common? Oh, we're both black. That's right. Right? Like those kinds of things mm. framed my, you know, my childhood. And so I think gravitating towards those faith spaces I felt sort of very protected within the context of those in in as much as they believe that God has called them to be nice to me. (laughs) I did that for like a year, my first year. And then I, but I started creating friendships with, with, you know, other black students on campus. And I found myself sort of, veering towards wanting those connections really badly um i found myself in like well i can feel the weight being lifted in, as you say well, in yeah in rooms of people that were you know looking at me and thinking that i that i was beautiful for for i'm like getting emotional i didn't think i was gonna do that I'm sorry but for literally the first time yeah yeah like in my life. And I went a little crazy. Like I went the other way. I was like, I have found a candy store and I will sample every candy that is available to me. You go girl. We support and that. so sophomore yeah. year, I was just, woo. I was everywhere doing all things. Um, I still blink when I drive through the state of Delaware. <laughs> I kind of lift my feet off the floor um, because I went buck wild is the only way i can think but it was a long time coming no but it was a long time coming i blush when i think back on those (laughs) on on those years in college but i think there also what was happening for me was i was also getting questions within the context of that black space so it was people would say well well, what are you? And I would say, I'm half black and I'm half white. And they would say, nah, you have to choose. Mm. I got a lot of you You have have to choose which you are. Are you black? Are you white? Like, how are you identifying? This is the first that these conversations are starting to be broader, right? Then it's, and they didn't have the same language that we use now, Mm -hmm. but it was sort of this, how are you identifying? Mm-hmm. I was going to say, this was coming from both sides. Yeah, I'm yeah. getting this now. Well, and this is early 90s, and this is when yeah. these sorts of conversations, conversations are starting. very much starting. Absolutely. And then language was starting to evolve on the college campuses. And my choice to identify as a black woman was difficult. It, it came in a really difficult way. It also was hard because I felt like Am I denying my father, who was very dear to me? And at some point, I I had to kind of let that piece go. I got there because there was an incident when I was a sophomore on the campus. There was an inf- incident between a football player 
who happened to be black and his girlfriend who also was black. The police were called in. The university police were called in. The campus police were called in. And he ran. And um, the campus police officer was, you know, terribly overweight and was trying to run after him. Obviously couldn't keep up with him. He called like, I think it's called a 1040 or something. There's some numeric code that means officer down. So Newark police um, and um, and university police were called on the scene. They're all converging on the scene. At the same time, a party is being let out uh, that was by one of the, um, the black fraternities had hosted a party on campus. So the party was being let out simultaneously. Um, I happened to be friends with people who were friends with the football player. So my roommate is, we're all trying to figure out what's going on. I see my roommate outside and she's running. The police are coming thinking that, you know, an officer's down because someone's done something to them. I see them just grabbing people. They've grabbed my roommate and the officer actually used a, like a, a stun gun, whatever on my roommate. I see her, she's like Like up against the wall and I see her body just do like a thing. And then, and I'm like screaming and I'm running towards her because it's just like that fight or flight thing. So in my person, I'm like, I have to get to her and help her. I'm running, an officer turns around, he maces me, like, or capstan or whatever it is, Ugh. all up in here and all up in my face. It's, it's on my, it's dripping in my eyes, it's in my hair, and throws me to the ground. It just ends up being just mad chaos. My roommate and a couple other people end up getting arrested and they're taken and we have to, like, go bail them out. I'm, like, just trying to get this stuff out of my eyes and... It was just chaos. And I remember the, you know, these officers were saying we were trying to take their weapons and just all kinds of crazy, insane stuff. And I'm like, no, when you're beating someone's ass, sometimes the little snappy thing comes undone, like essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, so at that moment, that was really a pivotal, pivotal moment for me in my journey because I was like, oh, we know who you are. Clearly, we know who you are at the end of the day. There was no question about who you were. Yeah. And that was actually, that was the turning point for me. And then we had to field like in classes, you know, you're missing classes. I was traumatized. We were all traumatized. And, you know, professors, it's not being packaged. Honestly, you know, we're talking about you know, having a rally and and meanwhile, the KKK, which is just a huge chapter, yeah. very close to, is talking about, you know, Coming marching over. down Main Street, um, you know, <sighs> like they do. Um, and I'm literally dealing with anxiety and I'm dealing with these feelings of rage where I'm mm. like imagining myself in my car just down main street (laughs) and i like i'm it's crazy for me to say that out loud i don't know that i've ever said it out loud but it was really something that i was struggling with and like news is converging on us Mm -hmm. um on campus and you know your professors it's being packaged in a way that we've done something horrible and horrendous you know and we're criminal and we're and it really um i left uh 
shortly after that. I'm so sorry. I, left, that... I never finished. I never went back. I never, I left there. Um, and that, at that moment I was like, oh, I'm a black woman. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I am absolutely a black woman. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. And um, that was really a pivotal moment for me. And so then I, when I came home, I was like, I am worshiping in a black church. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That is where I'm going. Yeah. That is where I will be. Mm -hmm. And I ended up um, going to Second Calvary with my grandmother and my uncle and my aunt. And um, I really did find a home for myself there. It's almost like a um, cultural, like, or like, yeah. sort of thing. That's why I'm not asking that me. I don't have deep for me. That's what I want to go. I'm yeah. very spiritual person, yes. and that's where for me, that's the ticket. Yeah, that. How is does the that ticket. manifest? Oh, so that ma- so for me, everything that I do, every fight that I fight, um, every uncomfortable conversation that I have, every time I offer an education to someone, it is grounded in this understanding that my relationship with my higher power Mm -hmm. means that I am called to do those things. Mm -hmm. And I feel most connected to that when I am doing those things. And when did that, come to be meaning when did you realize okay all the cultural things that i'm doing not until i was a mom okay it wasn't until i was a mom we'll get there i I will remember to come back here (laughs) um because you didn't go back to college you didn't finish there i don't even know what you were studying not that it matters but what did you try to go to college elementary education oh because yeah (laughs) because i wanted to teach yeah little people And then you come back here? I come back here. And where do you meet your husband? When do so, kids happen? Okay, so i going to Second Calvary. And then they get a pastor that I was, I'm not down for. I'm not down for how oppressive he is. I'm not down for how he's making people feel. Mm. I've, I've had, I've met someone. I've had my Tatiana, mm-hmm. um, my oldest. Um and the church, um, you know, really supported and nurtured me through that. I was very supported um, as a single pregnant woman. And so I've had her. I'm, I'm teaching Sunday school. Now I'm teaching. And he's saying things that are not sitting well in my spirit. Hmm. And I have a child who's hearing those things. Hmm. And I can't just be the adult who's like, this is my home. You've invaded and you're saying things that I don't like, um, but I'm going to stick it because you're going to be gone at some point and I'm still going to be here because my kid is there and she's mm-hmm. hearing things that I'm not comfortable with. So I start looking for a church. I ended up going to First Baptist in Pennington and I knew like I was embraced like immediately. An older couple um, that looked like me, they grabbed us and they became my church parents. Mm. And I mean, like we went to eat with them after every Sunday and they didn't just love on me. They loved on my mom. They loved on my grandmother. They loved on everything that was me. My husband 
came to visit First Baptist with a coworker and saw me there. And I was very active. You know, I was, I don't know if I was church clerk at the time. And, um, and he came and he saw me and he kept coming. And I was clueless. I was all about, I was like, oh, I'm never getting married. I have this little one that I'm so focused on. By then I'm like, I don't know, I'm, you know, almost 30 at this point. I'm 30 at this point. And I'm not thinking about him. I'm, I'm seeing someone actually who's just a hot mess. That's a whole other story. But, you know, who's just not non-committal. His, but his daughter is always coming and hugging me after we sing and wants to comes to me several times and is like, I want to play. She wanted to play with my daughter. Now they will, they went to the same dance school because I thought it was important that my daughter have experiences learning with other Brown girls like Mm -hmm. her. So we used to go down to the line of Ewing and Trenton for dance because I felt like a great opportunity um, for her to experience that which is something that I didn't have mm-hmm. and it, but I already was understanding for my child it had to be very different mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. so we're now worshiping in a black church I'm having her go to dance school in the black yeah, community what a, I'm creating right this yeah you won't have the identity crisis the that I had you all not. the way in college you will not. Yeah. and so they the, the kids hang out uh, and they hang out a couple times and I think at some point what happened was my church mom, she looked at me and she said, are you blind? (laughs) Like, do you not see, first of all, what's happening here? And then like, do you not see him? Like, have you looked at this man that is like following you around? (laughs) Ha (laughs) ha. I just laughed at the mic just to, you know, let him know. Ha ha. We know how that went. Um, and I was like, what are you even talking about? Like, I literally, like he was invisible to me. And then I started looking and I was like, oh, damn. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, damn. He he was already like in the mindset. Um, when I realized we're hanging out and this is going to be a thing, like I go back to Mr. Noncommittal and I'm like, there's this guy he is legit, right? Yeah. We both have kids. So we're moving in the world really differently. And so Mr. Committal went away. Mm-hmm. And then my husband and I started like dating properly. And we were married, gosh, within maybe like a year and a half. Yeah. So on your tech talk, you talk about we could not change the world if we kept changing for the world. Yeah. Um, and I know that we're going to get more into that, but I wonder if that part had to do with having your daughter and this whole identity Mm -hmm. part that you were That was the beginnings. That was really the beginnings of my understanding of what that meant. Um, I, you know, in many ways she didn't get the fullness of this powerful experience that my later child, because she, I learned on her. Mm, I sure. literally learned on her. There were certain elements of how I mothered that was modeled behavior. And then there were certain elements that absolutely were not. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, seeing her struggles and how hard it was for her here, because things got worse. She was the only black student, black girl, I'm sorry, 
there was a black boy at Hopewell Elementary. Hmm. She was less of a tough cookie than I was Mm -hmm. because I would throw hands and uh, she was not inclined to throw it. Plus she was just a little, little teeny thing. Um, And it was horrible for her. Mm. We ended up leaving and moving to Ewitt because of how horrible it was for her. She had an experience where a boy called her the N-word and the school had contacted the the boy's mother, got my daughter into a room, convinced her that it hadn't really happened, that she'd misunderstood, had her write a letter of apology and read it to him before I even knew that this had happened. Before I even knew Mm -mm. that this had happened. So it was, this is when the district was still moving in a disprove the victim sort of mentality. Mm -hmm. And there was more concern about what it meant for their community if it was in fact the case that this little boy had done what he clearly had done. Needless to say, (laughs) when I found out, Mm. things got very interesting. Yeah. (sighs) I circumvented the process. I went straight up. They told me I had to come back down to the bottom. It was a nightmare. And um, and it was horrible for her from that point on because then those mommies, they closed the circle. Mm-hmm. Now right? she's out. She's out. She's all the way out. She's all the way out. Yeah. That's not okay. horrifying. Yeah, it's not okay. So we left. We bought a house in Ewing. And yeah, and that's that's how long ago? That's not that long ago. No, she's 29. It's like 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, we bought a house in Ewing. And interestingly enough, like the problems didn't go away. It was hard for her there too. Because they're like, oh, you dress like a white girl. You act like a white girl. You talk like a white girl. And then there were girls who were white, who were growing up in the same section of Ewing that we were living in, who, you know, really were found black culture very interesting and exciting and were sort of really sort of submerged in sort of black culture and had lots of interest in black boys and um, also did not like my child. I still remember the time when, you know, a 16-year-old, my my child was like in middle school and like the size of like an eight-year-old, she's so small. Maybe she was like 80 pounds at that point and some 16-year-old girl said she was going to fight her. I was like, are you kidding me? Um, So we only lasted in Ewing for like two seconds. And then we ended up back here. Because in my mind, I was like, she's safe. Yes. She's physically safe. Exactly. Mm. But not not mentally. If I could do it again, I would do something I was going to say, but the other option is... Wasn't not okay. safe mentally yeah. or physically. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that's that's to say, like, listen, that choice was also in part made for us. I had been, I was pregnant with my youngest. I was having a really high risk pregnancy. We lost my grandfather's patriarch of the family while I was pregnant with my son. I was having a lot of issues. There was a lot of risk and threat to the pregnancy. My husband looked at me and said, "Listen, I'd rather we rub two pennies together." 
then you lose this baby. I left my job without another job. Mm. I started working for my sister. I started a side mm-hmm. business. I started, you know, sort of hustling. But the health insurance, you know, we were paying the mortgage and the health insurance. We were paying like $1,300 a month to insure all the kids. And that was way too much money. It wasn't sustainable. We actually ended up losing our house and being homeless for like six months. Where um, were you? Where did you do? Did you stay in? We slept on, you know, in a sp- spare room at my, my mom had gotten remarried and was living in Ewing at the time. So it was, thank goodness it was summertime. We were sleeping in the spare room and on the floor in that room. How many of you? Ca- so it was my husband and I, Tatiana and, and Brooks at that point. And then, you know, he, we have, I have two stepchildren. Um, and so they were coming to visit. We lasted there only about, we lasted there a short while. I said we were homeless for six months. I don't know why I said that. It's actually, it was a month. And then... And this was during your high-risk pregnancy? No, this is after. After. This was after. Okay. After. But, so it started catching up. So still trying to continue to pay this. He's a, you know, he's a, he's a, he's a baby. Mm-hmm. You know? We have a newborn. Trying to, yeah. Trying to pay, you know, all of these things. And it, we just kept getting, it was like this hole that we just kept getting sure. deeper into. Sure. So it made it seem like it was a really short period of time. It was a couple of years. But it's, you just kept getting deeper, mm-hmm. yeah. deeper into this hole. We lasted 30 days at my mom's. And the house on the hill was like in massive disarray. No one was living there. My brother had been living there. You know, the power had gone off. The pipes burst. There was an open ceiling. like. Mm-hmm. And then after 30 days, it was just very tense because there are a lot of us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I don't care that the house isn't like in any proper condition that's where we're going so we went and lived there and my husband at that point decided to leave comcast where he was working and become an apprentice in the uh electrical union and before that seemed so frightening because it was such a pay cut but at that point i was like well listen (laughs) doesn't get worse than this (laughs) so it was so it was a pay cut for a little while but then you know, immediately benefits. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then, the and then within five years, our whole life is completely different. What so, got you through the worst part? Do you remember? My kids and my husband. My husband, there's not, I can't, I would be hard pressed to imagine something that he wouldn't do to make sure that we were okay. Mm-hmm. He's pretty remarkable in that way. Uh, he's, you know, been on his own since he was in his teens. It's not a great situation. And he had spent a lot of time in his life, you know, being homeless. And he never, you know, wanted that for his family. And listen, and I'd been poor. I knew then that I had been poor. By then I'd figured out that I had been poor. And I wasn't right. afraid, like, yeah. in that way. There were moments when I just, when I felt like I failed. I think that was the hardest part. Hmm. I felt like I had failed my family. I felt that people were disappointed in me. Um, and this was when the housing, by the way, that was during the housing crisis. And so there, I can, I can have a conversation with you all day about the fact that unions do matter and they're important and how they change oh, people's lives. 100%. And how they change the experience for the American worker. Mm-hmm. I can have a conversation with you about how healthcare 
should be a right in this country. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I can have a conversation with you about how horribly people suffer because of that housing crisis. Mm -hmm. So I lost my house. I had also lost my car. My car was repossessed. It was not a great time. (laughs) So you moved up here. So we moved up here on the mountain. Yeah. Up here at Hopewell. Uh Mm Uh-huh. Up on Mountain Church Road. The four, you know, the four of us at this point. And um, my husband is super handy. And, you know, he immediately started working on the house to make it something that we could be proud of and where we could live. Now, we did a whole lot of work there. And I think, you know, our hope was that we would buy it from my mom. Because at this point, I'm really still like getting very jazzed into, I had already always been very fascinated by history. My grandmother, that's something that my grandmother, a seed that she had planted in me from a very young age, the power of the personal narrative Mm -hmm. um, and how it could bring such a tremendous understanding of history while you're looking at the individual story set against the backdrop of like what's going on in the world. Everything that you just said right now, like everybody should stop, go back 20 seconds and listen again. It's so important. It is. It is hugely important. It's everything. Because when we experience it with a heartbeat with a face that looks mm-hmm. familiar with or sounds familiar it takes on a whole different meaning my grandmother made that introduction for me so there was something powerful well, and story has been told by white people for yeah thousands and thousands the, the of years Victor got to tell the story yeah white men and so white yeah. men correct yeah. yeah i mean and so for me i'm already feeling the power in this idea that I'm now occupying and we're now making repair to the legacy mm-hmm. of our family. Mm-hmm. Like I feel that like in my, my person in a Something. very deeply spiritual totally. way. Um, it's a calling the idea almost. that, you know, my grandfather who I'm missing terribly that he walked here, that the church that I'm pulling these ratty pears off of, and I'm going to make something with those ratty pears that he tended to and that he did. You know, like for me, that the land there, mm-hmm. I almost imagined that the whole time that was the plan. Like the land was like, you're coming back here because, you know, our roots were, were buried in that soil. Mm-hmm. And that pool was was tremendous for me. So, you know, we were investing in that place in a meaningful way. My mom was married and living in Ewing. Then comes a horrible miscarriage. We didn't even know that we wanted any more children until after that. So I always say that Eve, born Micah, Hmm. is the only one of my children that we made a choice that we were going to create. Mm -hmm. And that's not a coincidence so how far along were you for with your miscarriage not far like 12 weeks but i but let's talk about healthcare and women mm. the i found out on the phone that i was i was miscarrying that i was going to miscarry that's you know i, I at 12 talking, weeks yeah so they tell me come in come in tomorrow so my brother brings me in And I'm waiting endlessly. I can feel the cramping in my body. And I'm, I'm, I'm there waiting for someone to see me. And all of these other people are very pregnant. And they're talking about 
being very pregnant and my my brother is just looking at me like how are you not just like melting away at Mm. this point Mm. it was so cold i remember going up to the window and speaking through very clenched teeth and saying that you know like we're we're dying here and i'm sitting here so they finally pulled me back and they convinced me that the best most natural and healthiest thing is for you to just let your body do this naturally not to do the dnc not to do any of those things but just go home and let your body do this naturally that was horrible for me of course because what most women will tell you what ends up happening is you miscarry in on the toilet literally into the toilet Mm -hmm. and then you're faced with this like horrible like situation and so much pain it was incredibly painful more painful than if i had just right because your body's literally expelling expelling um and there's no and there's no there's nothing to put in your arms and for me it felt really like really shitty advice and it felt unnecessarily cruel because if they had laid it out for me like this is what's going to happen this is what you're going to feel and this is then I would have made an informed decision. Mm-hmm. I made an mm-hmm. uninformed decision. Well, well, you didn't make a decision. They made it for you. No, they essentially <laughs> by they not strongly influenced. And yeah, by not giving you information. My decision. Um, and nobody knew that, you know, that we were pregnant. Nobody knew. Um, so here I am going through this horrible thing. And nobody knows, like, why I'm, like, a hot mess. <laughs> So, and, and my husband didn't know what to do with it either. Like he was really sad and he got really quiet. He was in pain too. And I do remember us deciding then that we were going to create another life, that that's what we were doing. That was absolutely what we were doing. And she was a choice that we made. And I think that that has informed also the Mm -hmm. fight. Like we made a choice. We sat down and we made a choice to bring her here. Yeah. And so, you know, then is Eve and she. Join us again next week when we talk with Kat about how LGBTQ plus advocacy became personal for her in her role as a fierce mama bear. And don't forget, you can catch up with any of our episodes at any time in any of your favorite platforms.